What future American president campaigned for his first election to public office by distributing rum, wine, beer, and cider? I voted for him. To potential voters. <laughs> you and your presidents. Why do the hands of a clock move to the right? You and your clocks. <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and enjoy about a half hour of trivia. Okay, Marcia, here's the question. What future American president campaigned for his first election to public office by distributing rum, wine, beer, and cider to potential voters? Uh-huh. 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 Uh, can can you give me a century? Oh, sure, the 18th century. <laughs> so was it someone like oh God? I don't know a lot of those presidents after the after the founding fathers, right? He is one of the founding fathers. He is. In fact, he is the founding father. Well, the George Washington. It was <laughs> yes. Georgie. He sought election to the Virginia House of Burgesses from Fairfax County, and he campaigned for votes with 28 gallons of rum, 50 gallons, <laughs> 50 gallons of rum punch, 34 gallons of wine, 46 gallons of beer, and two gallons of cider royale. The county only had 391 voters. Oh, my God. Those were hearty. We think of millions of dollars being spent. Well, that was a lot of money being spent on 391 voters back then. I'll say party hearty, George. (laughs) So apparently George thought it was important to uh, lubricate the the electorate. Inebriate, I think. Isn't that interesting? That is funny. All right. So, Bob, did you ever wonder why do the hands of a clock Move to the right? That is a good question. It is. Because we, I think it would be because we read left to right. And so they thought, well, let's mimic the movement. No? <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Because clocks were invented in the Northern Hemisphere, and the hands followed the same direction as the shadows on a sundial. Oh, that's so it mimics the shadows right. of a sundial. I didn't ever think of I that. I never thought of that if either. It, if the dudes that invented it were in the Southern Hemisphere, the sundial moved the other way. Oh, I didn't think about that. Would be is that the, true? Yeah. Yeah. Really? So clockwise would be in the opposite direction today if somebody else invented it down uh, down under. Wow. I had no idea. That is amazing when you think about yeah. that. And, and common sense, actually. No, it's not common sense. It's <laughs> amazing. I told you it was amazing. <laughs> okay. All right. You have a question? Yes, I do. And it comes from your favorite category, animal facts. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is a a new discovery, okay? They're Uh known as ferocious fighters. They can smell blood in the water, but what's the latest scary thing we're learning about sharks? They have tooth decay? No, no. (laughs) Is that scary? Why would that be scary? Oh, they're going to lose their teeth? Well, that's scary to, to, death? scary to sharks. We're yeah. talking about... Oh, okay, to us. Uh, I don't know. They carry some horrific uh, molecule that can is poison. No. Oh, some of them glow in the dark. Oh! <laughs> a study published last week in Frontiers of Marine Science established that kitefin sharks, 
The species that grows to almost six feet in length emits blue-green light. Now, these sharks live well below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. They uh, found that's these. That's why we didn't know before. That's that's right. Okay. They found these uh, 2,600 feet below the surface of the Pacific off the New Zealand coast, and they saw these luminous fish glowing fish and they're sharks and apparently that serves multiple purposes number one they can avoid detection by larger predators because uh, from the bottom you look up and it just looks like the blue of the water up there and they're kind of invisible but also they apparently illuminate the floor as they glide over it and they find their dinner food down there their shrimp and squid on the seafloor ah. so they think there are a couple of purposes and scuba for it. divers Yes. And the interesting thing, what causes this in the shark? It's the hormone melatonin. As scientist Dr. Jerome Malefit says, it makes us fall asleep, but it lights up the sharks. No kidding. Yeah. Well, that's curious. So glowing sharks. Now, I can't imagine anything scarier than that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God. Supernatural, yeah. <laughs> okay. You titillated me with your question last week about the number 100 best movie quote was, uh, I'm king of the world from Titanic. Yes, yes, and yes. I thought... And that was from the American Film Institute. The American Film Institute, yeah. yeah. So I went and read them all. So I have I have the top 10 here. Can you name any of the top five? Guess. You've seen all these movies. Can you give me the names of the movies? I'll guess the lines or oh, the other way around. I thought I'd do it the other way, but this would be easier and you do need a little help. Okay. But what does that mean? <laughs> I don't like the way you said that. Okay, I'll give you It was the... a little too benevolent. It like, was, okay. Bob, you know your problem. <laughs> Yeah, let me do this. Okay, you're right, and this will help you out a lot. I'll give you the movie. Uh, first one, Gone with the Wind. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Right on. And as a tip of the hat to our screenwriter's son, Benjamin Christopher, I'm going to say who the writer was on these films. Okay, good. Okay. Written by Sidney Howard, Barbara Keon, Lydia Schiller, two women, and Connie Earle. They That's, were the screenwriters for yeah, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, four writers, and they had five directors. Oh, my God. <laughs> They had a lot of problems. You know, they had that. That was the way it was with some of those big films back then. The Wizard of Oz had, I think, three different directors that went through. Yeah. And then I don't know how many screenwriters they went through. All right. Number two is The Godfather, 1972, the original Godfather. Yes, that was... Going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, this is just a, a... a cornucopia of Bob voices in this category. <laughs> this is great. Yes, you're absolutely right. On the Waterfront. Oh, that was a... Could have been a contender. Yep. Could have been somebody. That's right. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Oh, I wouldn't call myself that, Marcia. <laughs> but On the Waterfront, you're right. Written by Bud Schulberg. Bud Schulberg, famous screenwriter. Yep, that was number three. Number four, all-time... Uh, Top movie quotes from, you just mentioned this, The Wizard of Oz. Hmm, I'll get you my pretty and your little dog, too, is one. But I think it's, uh, there's no place like home. No. What is it? You're right. You named two very popular, but it's Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> and people have used that many times since uh-huh. then. Uh-huh. And who wrote Wizard of Oz? Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Okay. Okay, well, here's a surprise number five, Casablanca. Okay, uh, well, let's see. Louie, I get a feeling this is going to be a good, beautiful friendship. Uh, let's see, what is it? Um, obviously, Humphrey Bogart. And I think it's the one where he says, um, 
Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but nope. soon. No. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> Don't tell me he didn't say that. He said it, but no. Okay, not number sorry. five. Right. It is. Oh, wait a minute. It's about of all the gin joints in the world. No. You've came in... no, no okay. it wasn't yeah. that one. All it's right. the one, and you'll kick yourself. Here's looking at you, kid. Ooh, just <laughs> kick myself. Here's looking at you, kid. Okay, of course. And that was written by Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch. Okay, now here are some things that were not well-named or not well-written. Uh-huh. I've got three famous names. Lake Tahoe, La Brea Tar Pits, uh-huh. and the Milky Way Galaxy. Places we all want to go on vacation. Absolutely. <laughs> Where? <laughs> what do those three things have in common? And I'm talking about poorly written. Bad movies? No, not bad movies. Lake Tahoe, bad. La Brea Tar Pits, and the Milky Way Galaxy. I don't know. They are all redundant place names. <laughs> lake Tahoe means lake lake. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because it gets its name from a loose pronunciation of a word of the Native American language that means lake, so it's lake lake. <laughs> the La Brea Tar Pits is the tar. That's what La Brea means. Oh. The tar, tar pits. Okay. <laughs> and Milky Way, way is milky? The word galaxy in Greek means milky. So it's the Milky Way Milky. <laughs> Milky Way Galaxy. Isn't that funny? Yes. But anyway, I got a question for you, Bob, from a listener in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Ginny Assel. Okay. She wants to know if you know what unique feature was built into the Eiffel Tower. Hmm. Unique feature built into the Eiffel. Well, remember when we were there, we went to the very top and there's a apartment up there little apartment that's it oh really okay yeah and uh, he used it to entertain distinguished guests and it's on the third level the top and it can be seen as you ride up the elevator but actually didn't they recreate a little bit up there yeah, as there's i a recall little, remember we looked through a window and there was like a wax figure of eiffel and uh, thomas edison i believe oh okay yeah and apparently he had people musicians up there and Famous people up there. Yeah. It was kind of like a way to show people. They never used it as an apartment. No. But it was a perk to uh, show off the Well, place. there was a rumor. I heard a rumor years ago that it was used for uh, romantic trysts. It is Paris, Bob. <laughs> but I've never seen any evidence of that. But I remember that was in, a, I think, a book we had on sex lives of famous people or something <laughs> that like that. we had to get rid of. We had to get rid of that because our teenage daughter started reading that. <laughs> One night when we went away. Okay, that's enough. Okay, thanks to Jenny Ussel for giving us that question. That's great. And we invite anyone else who has a question to uh, send it to us by going to our website, theofframp.show, and going to... Contact us. Just tell us where you're from and who you are. Give us the question. Oh, yeah. The answer. (laughs) And who do you want to answer that question? Yeah, who to answer? Like Stump Marsha with this one. (laughs) I'm looking for some of those. Okay. All right, Bob, there's a very popular whiskey. You don't pay much attention to booze, but there's a popular whiskey on the shelves right now, and it's called Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. Really? Yeah. Okay. So who the heck is Uncle Nearest? He's the uncle that's nearest me. <laughs> it's Uncle Bill, I think. Ah. No, no, I don't know. Well, therein lies an interesting story, Bob, about an old former slave by the name of Nathan Green, nicknamed Nearest who taught a young Jack Daniel how to make whiskey. No kidding. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that story before. No, and a lot of people haven't. And that's why a woman, an author named Fawn Weaver, 
an African-American woman, was drawn to the little-known story of Green and set out to research him for a book and a movie, maybe. Okay. She and her husband bought the original Jack Daniel Distillery in Lynchburg, Tennessee. They had a realtor named Sherry Moore, and long after they bought it, they found out she turned out to be a descendant of Jack Daniel with a long career in the Tennessee whiskey industry. And she said, if you really want to honor Nearest, instead of with a book or a, a movie, a whiskey would do it. And if you ever decide to make whiskey... I'll come out of retirement to make sure you get it right. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. isn't that cool? Uh-huh. Long story short, Fawn Weaver went full steam ahead, and since 2017, she has captured more than 160 awards for her premium whiskey and is experiencing triple-digit growth. And just recently, it was announced that her whiskey was the best-selling African-American-owned and founded spirit brand in history. And who would have thought of that? That's fascinating. I had no idea. So Jack Daniel learned his whiskey making from an old slave. A former slave, yeah. So Uncle Nearest has found his fame because the numbers are growing uh, rapidly. And for Weaver, the brand is a testament to a remarkable history of a white orphan boy... Daniel, and an African-American elder who worked side-by-side with mutual respect. That is fantastic. I love that story. Yeah. Like you said, that will continue his memory much longer than just a movie or a book. Yeah. Because the... Yeah. And I'd like to research how the heck he got that name nearest. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. He's nearest. Well, you know how slaves were named. It's kind of interesting. I have a question, Marcia. Uh Very simple. Why do we carpet the floors in our cars? Sound vibrations. That's exactly the reason. That's the main reason, yeah. There are all kinds of noises emanating from the bottom of a vehicle while it's running, and the synthetic fabrics and carpeting help to absorb the sounds by some estimates as much as 40%. So it's an inexpensive way to insulate drivers from a considerable racket that would be coming <laughs> yeah. into the car well, from the undercarriage. Sense. Yeah. They say it also acts as insulation. It keeps the car warm when the heater's on and Finally, any spills on a metal surface could lead to rust or other damage. But for manufacturers, carpeting is cheap, beneficial, hides a lot of the dirt and grime, and it's the most practical design solution available for noise suppression. Makes sense. I think it's time to take a break. It is, Bob. (laughs) Okay, we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Bob and Marcia Smith on The Off-Ramp. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Okay, Roberta. What? <laughs> I, I call him Roberta sometimes because his name is Robert Andrew Smith. And yeah, and Robert A., the A sometimes gets hooked right to that first name. <laughs> like at airports, well, Roberta Smith, please report. <laughs> that was when I was working at Rockwell, and I was with a bunch of folks that were my coworkers and staff, and we were at some airport, I forget where, but on the PA it said, well, Roberta Smith, please come to the desk, Roberta Smith. So... I said, okay, I guess it's me, and I walked up there (laughs) out loud. It was funny. (laughs) All right, Roberta. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin vastly improved the colonial postal service for the British crown in 1732. This is before the United States came into being. But there was a selfish motivation for helping to get the colonial postal system off the ground. What was it? Well, uh... It was something he was doing... On the side. Oh, he had a, 
gosh, it was some kind of mail order thing? It was a publication. Oh, the Almanac. Yes, Poor Richard's Almanac. He wanted to improve the circulation of his Poor Richard's Almanac and his Pennsylvania Gazette, because he was a publisher. Uh-huh. So the Almanac reached a circulation of 10,000 at one time, which was a lot. And Franklin doubled and tripled postal service in some areas, and he increased the speed of mail carriers, helped to consolidate the roads from Maine to Georgia. I mean, Benjamin Franklin did a lot of good stuff here. That consolidated road later became Route 1 on the East Coast, and it was all because he wanted to increase the circulation of his magazines. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's enlightening. That's funny. Well, we often do that. It's not exactly altruistic, but it did eventually help everybody. Right? And it helped the British crown. He produced three times the postal revenues that England's other favored colony, Ireland, produced. And the English crown was pleased. Very good. All right, would you want to hear some more redundant place names here? (laughs) Sure. Minnehana Falls. Ever heard of that place in Minnesota? Minnehana is Indian for falls. That's right. It's Waterfall Falls. That's what (laughs) it stands for. The Sahara Desert. Sahara means desert. Oh, okay. So it's a desert desert. Uh That's what it stands for. And El Camino Way. You've probably heard of that uh, as a street. The Way Way? Street in Palo Alto, California. Uh Yeah, the Way Way. (laughs) (laughs) And if you drive in your Chevy El Camino, you will be driving your way down the Way Way in the way. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Just just a quickie, Bob. The sixth most popular movie quote was from the movie Sudden Impact. Sudden yeah. Impact. What was it? I don't know. Come on, this is this is in your wheelhouse of voices. Is this a Clint Eastwood yeah. film? Okay, Sudden Impact. Sudden Impact. Dirty Harry Sudden Impact. And he said, "Go ahead, make my day." <laughs> that was when the uh, the guy was grabbing the gun. The gun was laying there, and he said, go ahead, make yeah. the gun. Yeah. Do you realize you can do almost all the impressions of the top six quotes? <laughs> what he- I liked about was that, that one where he goes, uh, you know, <laughs> come to think of it, did I shoot six rounds or only five? And then he says uh, about the Magnum could blow a head, yeah. somebody's head clean, clean off. off. I used to know that thing by heart. Oh, I bet our son can just quote these by the paragraphs. But you got to ask yourself, <laughs> do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> That's my favorite. Right. Gary Yingling and I, he was a, another guy at Rockwell, and we used to do that across the rooms and meetings. Like, well, do you, punk? You know, back and forth. The people thought we were nuts, I think. Our dueling Clint meetings. Eastwood impressions. Hey, I've got some interesting music questions for you here. Okay. Okay. In the late 1970s, uh, the Eagles included a country rock song entitled I Wish You Peace on one of their albums. Now, Bernie Leadon of the Eagles wrote that song with his girlfriend at the time. His girlfriend was a very famous, well, she had a very famous father. Who helped Bernie Leadon of the Eagles write the song Wish You Peace? God, these are questions for you, not for me. I don't know who. Patty Reagan. Really? Ronald Reagan's daughter, yeah. No the, kidding. The record label credits Bernie Leadon and Patty Davis, and Patty Davis was a pseudonym used by Patty Reagan. So, I'll be darned. Because Nancy Davis was her mother. Yeah, you know, that's so. right. I'll yeah. be darned. Well, that comes out of nowhere. All right. Now, what do music stars Leon Russell, Glenn Campbell, David Gates, and Billy Preston have in common? Jeez. Uh, Don't know. They have a common background. They all did something together in 1960. Now, that goes way back, but if you're a person of a certain age, you remember a show called Shindig? Oh, of course. Well, they played in the band. 
Really? There was a band on that show, Shindig, and this is all before all of them became famous. Leon Russell was a piano player. Glenn Campbell was a guitarist. David Gates, who later went on to form the group Bread, was a guitarist. And Billy Preston, who played with the Beatles on uh, some of their latter hits, including Get Back, they were all in the Shindig Orchestra on the show. Was that show on every day or every week? It was every week. Yeah, it was ABC. Yeah, I never missed it. Had my little white boots to prove it. (laughs) And here's one more. Leon Russell and David Gates were in the same Tulsa, Oklahoma high school band together. Oh, no kidding. So they went way back. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Okay. So just some rock and roll facts. All right. So... You ever wonder what that sound is you hear when you hold a seashell up to your ear, Bob? It's the sound of the ocean, Marcia. Nobody ever explained that to you? (laughs) (laughs) It's just the cupping. It's the way the sound rolls around in the seashell. The sound of the air. No. What is it? It is. It's fairies, isn't it, Marcia? (laughs) No. (laughs) It's the Arthur Conan Doyle fairies. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it's the blood surging through your veins in your ear, and when it's cupped, a cup-shaped object is placed over your ear. It produces the same effect as that. what you hear when you hold a... sounds like the rushing water. Really? Yeah, it's just the blood going through your ear veins. <laughs> Good Lord, I didn't know that. Yeah. Here, I thought it was the ocean all this time. <laughs> Marsh, you remember the last show I mentioned that two things that were introduced at the World's Fair... In 1876. I remember a banana and a phone. The telephone. <laughs> telephone and the banana. Yeah. Well, Budweiser beer and Hires root beer also were introduced at that show. Budweiser beer won top honors in a competition at the fair. Developed by Adolphus Bush, who was already producing 15 other brands, he introduced refrigerated rail cars for all of its beers. Hires root beer household extract was promoted at the fair with the display of dried roots, barks, and herbs. Charles Heyer was going to call his new drink herb tea, but he was convinced by a friend, Russell Conwell, to call it root beer. Okay. He said that the hard-drinking Pennsylvania coal miners would be more attracted to root beer than herb tea. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and that man was right. I think it would have been a lot less successful than root beer. (laughs) I agree, I agree. Okay, What is unusual about the 15th century stone kissed by Joan of Arc and located in the Joan of Arc Chapel at Marquette University? It still has the lip marks on it. (laughs) No, I didn't know that. And this is at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and they had the Joan of Arc stone? Yeah. Well, it was a stone kissed by her. A stone kissed by Joan of Arc is there. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a paranormal thing. You know what it is? It's very unusual, and there's no question that it... It's ever since the kiss, that stone has remained mysteriously colder than any stones surrounding it. Huh. You can touch it, and it's unusually cold. Wasn't she burned at the stake? Oh, yeah. She was was like 19 years old when that happened. Can you believe that? No. Okay, you got one? I do have a, you know, we know of the musical Hamilton. One of the uh, villains in Hamilton is Aaron Burr, right? Who Uh later went on to kill Hamilton. And he was vice president at the time. But did you know that there is a famous American university that he helped found? Uh, No, I did not. Princeton University. Oh, really? It began as the College of New Jersey in Newark, and it was founded by a group of Presbyterian ministers, including Aaron Burr. Many people don't know he was a member of the clergy. 
<laughs> really? Yeah, he served as... Well, he was rather murderous for a clergyman. Yeah. <laughs> he served as the president of Princeton from 1748 to 1757, and he moved it. He's the man who moved it to Princeton in 1756. It didn't change its name to Princeton University until 1896, rather okay. recently. But, he, of course, he is known to more history students as the man who killed... Alexander Hamilton. All right. But he founded a university. Well, going back to the good old days, what's unusual, Bob, about the music to the Star Spangled Banner? Oh, I had a story about that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, then you should know the answer. Well, it was uh, it was a English tune. Uh, yeah. Anacreon in Heaven, to Anacreon in Heaven. It was written by English composer John Stafford Smith. Yes, but it, it was a little more than that. It was, uh, it was a drinking song. Well, I heard the, that too, yeah. Yeah, so Francis Scott Key was taken prisoner during the war. The War of 1812. This yeah, was a, it's a, it was an English drinking song, Bob, written by John Stafford Smith, and it honored an ancient Greek poet called, what did, how did you pronounce that? I said that? Anacreon, but I don't yeah. know if that's correct. And he was known for being a great lover of wine. Oh, I And <laughs> that's why it became an uh, English pub drinking song. Oh, no kidding. Yes. Yeah, Star Spangled Banner. And, and uh, yeah, and Francis Scott Key had been in a pub the night before he was captured and so that song was apparently still in his head. Oh, so maybe he wrote it to the music. Do you know what he was doing the night he witnessed the rocket's red glare and wrote the words to the national anthem? What he was doing? Yeah. Wasn't he in prison at the time? No. Or he was on a ship He was or on something? a ship. Yeah. No, what? He was an attorney and he was acting as a mediator, which is something that attorneys yeah. often do. He was a lawyer from Georgetown, Maryland, 35 at the time, and he'd been sent on a mission to obtain the exchange of an American prisoner held on the British ship. That's what he was doing when he witnessed the bombardment of Fort McHenry. uh, So you have this question right there. You were going to ask me this today? Yeah. Uh, My question was, was, what was he doing on the ship? Your question was, tell me about the song. The music. Isn't that funny? British drinking Another overlap. And if it were the 4th of July or something, I would see the... (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to finish up. I'm going to leave you, Bob, with a thought to ponder. Okay. But I won't really leave you. Oh, no, just (laughs) please don't leave me. Thank you. During COVID, I I have to stay right here. According to Scientific American Magazine, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, odds are that every time you fill your lungs with air, at least one molecule of that air once passed through the lungs of Socrates. (laughs) But you have to live in the Northern Hemisphere for this. Yeah, which we do. Okay, (laughs) That's kind of strange. So, every, yeah, I know that is a, just a weird. I said it was a thought to ponder. I call it random, Marsh. Like you, you say <laughs> things that when when you don't really like some of my questions, that's pretty random. Okay. <laughs> so, Marsh, that was pretty random. Oh, I thought it was interesting. Uh huh. Socrates, Bob. Yeah. A, a molecule in your body. Okay, I've got <laughs> I've got a couple of last words, famous last words. Okay. Okay. George Orwell, who wrote 1984. Uh huh. His last written words were, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. (laughs) And he died at the age of 46. (laughs) Now, this is a strange last words for a woman who is the advocate of birth control, Margaret Sanger. Sanger, You know what her last words were? Uh Uh-uh. A party. Let's have a party. Really? (laughs) Doesn't go along with the spirit of birth control, does it? Well, well, she was frisky, so she had to figure out a way to be careful. Anyway, that's how how she went out. Oh, that was great. We hope you've enjoyed all the fun and frivolity. (laughs) We try to provide that. We do. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time for... 
The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.